Now let's uh, turn for our second reading and again our theme and our text to the Gospel according to Luke this time and chapter 9. Till this point we've been looking at it in the Gospel according to Matthew because there's a more full uh, spiritual context provided in Matthew. But for a particular reason, let's take it as we find it in Luke this time. So chapter 9 and reading at verse 28. Luke nine twenty-eight, And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. Then, behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. And for our text uh, this morning, we'll focus particularly on Peter's request in verse 33. He makes the request as Moses and Elijah are departing the mountain. He says, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, as we saw particularly uh, last night with God's help, the primary message of the Transfiguration uh, comes through loud and clear when God the Father says to Peter, James and John on the mountaintop that this is my beloved son. Hear him or listen to him. And I suppose in, in some ways pretty much everything we've said on Thursday and Friday can be summed up in these words, hear him, if you just emphasize each of the two words in turn. First of all, 
hear him. In other words, really listen to him. Listen to him properly. Listen to him spiritually. Listen to him attentively. Listen to him humbly as pupils would listen to a teacher. Listen to him spiritually. Listen to him as a people who are ready to obey whatever he tells you to do. Now, of course, the significance of that ties in with what we saw especially on Thursday night, that Peter particularly, but the rest of the disciples too, had begun not to listen, but to resist the teaching that the Lord was giving them. That was something new in their experience, and it's a sad thing, I suppose, that having followed the Lord for a year and a half, they should develop a dullness in their hearing, something that made them not attentive to Christ and resistant to the words that he was now speaking. So the Father says on the mountain, from the excellent glory, hear him, listen. And so often, friends, our listening is very defective and we don't realize it at all. Our listening is very selective and we don't realize that at all either. Hear him but also hear him. Hear him over and above all others. Even Moses and Elijah, the Old Testament, the interpreters of the Old Testament, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers, all human authorities, hear him. Hear him as he explains what Moses wrote. Hear him as he explains what the prophets wrote. Because Peter and the disciples were falling into the trap of accepting the exposition of others on the Old Testament, the understanding of others in connection with what the Christ had to do, or whether he would suffer or not, or whether he would die or not. And the common consensus, sadly, that had come into the church in the Apostles' day was that the Messiah would not die. He would never die. So when Christ began to teach that he must suffer and die, they don't accept it. And God says, listen to him. Let him explain the scripture. Let him explain Moses. And let him explain the prophets. Now, time was against us last night. But there was something that I wanted really to highlight. And perhaps it's best just to bring it out just now. And perhaps to elaborate a little bit on it. I want us to notice very carefully in that connection really the only words that the disciples spoke on the mount Um, most of the time rightly they were listening and it was a time to listen there is a time to listen and a time to speak and uh, perhaps it would have been better had they not spoken at all really as we'll see but they did speak or at least again Peter spoke and He spoke these famous words. I'm sure we're all, or most of us anyway, are familiar with them. Lord, if you will, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Strange request. What does it really mean? Now, it's not actually easy to understand fully what it means. Mark tells us that when Peter spoke these words, he was actually afraid at the time. And 
We're told also that Peter didn't know what to say. Now again, you see, would that not be an indication that it's best to say nothing? Usually when we don't know what to say, it's best to say nothing at all. But Mark tells us that he didn't know what to say, and Luke here tells us that he didn't actually know what he said, even as he was saying it. So I suppose in a way that prevents us from going too far into what exactly he meant by this, but at the same time we need to be careful. When the Gospel writers tell us these things, that he didn't know what to say and that he didn't know what he said, they don't mean by that that he was uttering something absolutely foolish or something absurd. When Luke tells us that he didn't know what he said, what Luke really means is that he didn't understand the implications of what he said. He, he didn't understand the outworking of what he was actually asking for. He knew at one level what he wanted, but he didn't really know what it all involved. Maybe he should have. There are times in the scriptures when we have other examples of that. In fact, not too long after this, um, when Christ again, for the second time, begins to broach the subject of the necessity of literal suffering and literal death, a peculiar incident arrives um, when James and John come to him along with their mother. It's quite strange and unusual. And for some reason, their mother is the spokesperson on their behalf. And she says, Grant in your kingdom, in the glory of your kingdom, that my sons may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left. Now at one level, she knows perfectly well what she's asking for. It's quite clear from the scriptures too that James and John knew what she was asking for. It's also very clear that the apostles understood and they weren't too happy with the request that was offered. But in another way, she didn't have a clue what she was asking for. Neither did James and John. And that is what the Lord highlights because he said to her, you do not know what you ask for. In other words, you haven't thought that through. You don't understand the implications of sitting on my right hand or sitting on my left. In any case, he says, it is not mine to give. That is in my Father's gift to give, not mine. But, he says, you're asking for this honour and for this dignity, even though I've explained so often to you that the way to honour and dignity in my kingdom is through humility and going low. And in that connection, he says, are you prepared to drink the cup that I will drink of? Are you prepared to be baptised with that awful baptism with which I am to be baptised? Have you any conception of what it involves for me to reach the throne in the first place? And any conception of what it may involve for you to ascend to the right hand or to the left? And of course, in their foolishness, they say, yes. Yes. The Lord condescends to their level and he says, well, yes, he says, indeed, in a measure, you will drink of the cup that I drink of and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Little do you know it, but 
you too will experience your suffering and your pain and your grief as you ascend to the place that I have for you. But to be on my right hand and my left is not in my gift to give, but in my Father's. The point, I mean, there's a lot in that, obviously, but the point that I'm making here is just exclusively this, this narrow one, that sometimes you can ask for something with an understanding of what you're actually asking for, but not a full understanding of what it involves and what all the implications are. No, that, I think, is what we have here. Peter is not just talking. Some people present him like that as though he's just saying something for the sake of saying something. People are too dismissive of this great man of God like that. That's not what he's doing at all. At one level, he does know what he's asking for, but at another level, he does not. He has not thought it through. Um, what does Peter want? Well, he wants tabernacles. Now, tabernacles are just tents or temporary dwelling places. And Peter obviously wants to prolong an experience that is actually slipping away. And it's slipping away very, very quickly. You'll notice the way Luke records it, Luke makes very, very plain that Peter makes this request just as Elijah and Moses are beginning to slip away. They are fading from view. It's then that he feels that he has to speak. And he has to speak because he doesn't want to let go of what he's got. It's good for us, he says, to be here. And let us make tabernacles because he wants them to stay. Now, connected with that, I think it's worth highlighting something that I was perhaps going to mention tomorrow, but perhaps it's best just to bring it in today, God willing. And that is that Moses and Elijah are both truly and physically there on the mountain. They don't just appear as a kind of vision, but they are actually really there, sent by the Father from heaven in their bodies in order to stand on either side of the Saviour. For more full understanding of that, I'll come to it tomorrow. But when I say it's not a vision, um, I'm conscious that Matthew does use the word vision, and Christ himself uses it, because after the experience is finished, coming down from the mountain, you'll remember that Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, not even the nine, like I said, and we'll touch on this on Monday, that was a cause of dissension between the nine and the three, of envy and jealousy. But they weren't even to tell the nine what they had seen and heard. But the words they used, the Lord used was this, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now that might incline you to think for obvious reasons that what they saw was an actual vision. But that's to ignore the fact that the word vision carries two distinct meanings in the New Testament. The first meaning is the one that we're most familiar with. That is to see something in a, in a visionary state, or in an ecstatic state. To see something that isn't actually real, but is symbolic of something that is real. Let me take, for example, the 
visions that John saw in the book of the Revelation. You find him in chapter 1, seeing the Lord with his hair as white as wool, and with a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth. Now, that's not how the Lord really was. Our Lord in heaven does not have a sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. But that was how the Lord wanted himself to be seen, adorned with various symbols that would communicate powerful spiritual truths to the people, to John and to his hearers and his readers. Or again in chapter 19, for example, when he sees the Messiah on a white horse and with a sword in his hand and the name Lord of Lords uh, written uh, on, on him. That, that's not how the Lord really is, but that's how he's seen in the vision. That's what a vision normally means. But the other meaning of the word vision is just a scene, something that you actually see, or a spectacle. In other words, if something was going on out there that was particularly remarkable, I might say, well, isn't that a spectacle? Isn't that a vision? Isn't that something to behold? Isn't it something to see? But it's the real thing. You see it as it is. Now that's the meaning here. They didn't see a vision of Moses and Elijah. They saw Moses and Elijah actually and really there. In other words, just as Christ was really there and Christ was really transfigured, he did not appear transfigured, but he was transfigured. An inward glory shone through. There was an outward glory bestowed, and that's how he actually was. Well, in the same sense, Elijah and Moses were there too. And they were there in their own bodies. Now, of course, we can easily understand that in collection with Elijah. Elijah was a man who was given a great uh, privilege and blessing just like Enoch in the patriarchal dispensation. He was actually raised bodily into heaven without tasting death. Only Enoch had that experience. I think a, a powerful witness to the patriarchal dispensation and to the following dispensation of the reality of the resurrection. Um, he experienced what only those saints who are alive when the Lord returns will experience, being caught up in the air and their mortality being swallowed up by immortality, uh, their bodies being changed, transformed in the twinkling of an eye. No death, just ascending into the presence of God and in the process of that ascension, their bodies being changed. Quite a stunning and remarkable thing in the experience of Enoch and the experience of Elijah. And so he has his body in glory, as Enoch does. It's not so easy to understand with Moses. You're probably aware that um, Moses had a strange uh, death and burial. Um, <clears throat> there's a mystery about his body. When he died, we're told that God buried him. And so the Lord in his angelic form, as the Son of God, when he comes as the, the messenger of the covenant, the one who wrestled with Jacob and the one who ate with Abraham, the commander of the Lord's armies who appeared to Joshua, he came down to Mount Nebo to bury Moses. A remarkable thing. No one saw that. No one witnessed it. 
that this mighty prophet of God was buried personally by God with no one else there. And his body was not found. We're told in the Old Testament that even until Joshua's day, no one knew exactly where Moses was buried. And that, in a way, would seem to be the end of that. Except, strangely, in the last book, or the second last book of the Old Testament, we're told that there was a dispute about Moses' body. The little letter of Jude tells us that Michael the archangel, contending with the devil, disputing about the body of Moses, dared not to bring a reviling accusation against the devil, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. There's a, a lot of interesting spiritual things happening there, which we have to leave for the moment. The one thing that concerns us is that Michael, this dignified archangel, was in dispute with the devil. Perhaps the devil in dispute with him concerning the body of Moses. What possible reason could there be for that? What possible reason? Well, friends, surely the only reason has to be something to do with the fact that God did not leave him buried, but that God raised this body. Maybe there was something in that that the devil didn't approve of. Maybe the devil was disputing the right to raise the body of Moses. Maybe the body of Moses was raised, for all we know, probably quite likely, raised with the intention in God's time to bring that body down onto the Mount of Transfiguration, to be an encouragement to the Lord and to be a witness to the disciples. How it's a witness to the Lord we'll see tomorrow. But it's no surprise if this body was raised in order to come down again. In any case, there's a dispute, and the dispute must have to do with the fact that there was a resurrection. Why raise this body? How can this body be raised when the so-called price for redemption has not been paid? On what basis, on what authority is this body to be raised and exalted to heaven? And if it's going to be lowered back down on the earth, by what authority are these things done? God doesn't need any external authority. But in any case, Peter is aware that just as it is a real Christ in front of him, so it is a real Moses and a real, real Elijah. And however little he might understand the implications of wanting tabernacles for these three, he wants them to stay. He wants them to stay. He loves the company. And even if he doesn't fully understand the discussion, which is to do with suffering and death, he wants it to go on. Now, I think we can all understand that. Deep down, you know, Peter may have difficulty with what the Lord is teaching, um, but it doesn't change the fact that he loves the Lord. He loves him deeply. And as we thought in the sermon last night and afterwards at the fellowship, it may be the case that he was put into a situation where he denied his Lord but how it hurt him that he denied his Lord. It's true that it was the last thing in the world that he would have wanted to do. He did it, and he wept bitterly. He loved the Lord, and he loved Moses, 
and he loved Elijah. And even if he didn't fully understand what the meeting was about or what the conversation was about, he wanted to be there. He wanted to stay there. He didn't want it to slip away. Now, friends, there are many times in our lives and many places where we are and we receive the blessing of God and we don't want that blessing to pass away. A true communion is like that. When you have a true communion, the presence and the power of God, not just the form or the ritual or the external things, but when the Lord comes and when he indwells and inhabits the praise and inhabits the preaching and inhabits the fellowships, you don't want that communion to end. It's a pain and a grief for it to end. It's so hard to come down to the mountain and to assume normal life again. A true fellowship is like that. When you've been with the Lord's people, when there is a good thing spoken about, when it is spoken about and expanded in a full and intelligent and spiritual way, well, who wants that to end? Who wants to go back to talk about something, whether it's anything from the weather to politics? Because there's nothing like this. There's nothing to be compared with it. Nothing to be compared with the presence and the power of God when he's at work in ordinances and in the fellowship of his people. He doesn't want it to end. But of course we know that that's just not the way it is. can't be like that. There will always be an arise and let us go from here until, as I mentioned in the prayer, we reach the place where at last we don't ever need to rise and we don't ever need to go from here. And the longer we live in this weary world, the more attractive that prospect becomes. Some people sometimes say that it's quite hard to get a handle on heaven, that it's quite difficult to anticipate it or to expect it or to hope for it because we know really so little about it. Well, in the first place, it's not the case that we know so little about it. But it might help if you thought about it a little differently. And I remember saying once to someone, well, suppose you began to think of a place where you are actually with the Lord. Suppose you think of a place where you have no sense of regret or remorse or shame, where there's no pain, no deformity, nothing evil, either in the past, as it were, or in anticipation, no insecurity, no uncertainty. No fear of things breaking and dissolving, no misunderstandings, no complaints, no sorrow, no sign, no mourning. Do you want that? You say, well, I guess I do. I do want that. And of course you want that. And times when God comes present and comes near are, are times when he fills our cup and gives us a sense that, ah, yes, that's coming. That's coming. And I wish I could prolong it in this life, but no, there is a table furnished for the wilderness, but there is also a marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we sit there, no need to get up. Supper never ends. The fellowship never ends. So we can understand Peter wanting that experience to continue, even if he doesn't understand everything that it was, was said because he's in the best company and they're speaking about spiritual things uh, I've had that experience myself in the past sometimes of uh, being in good people's company not quite understanding what was being said I'm not sure if that was my fault or theirs sometimes you're not quite sure but 
doesn't matter. It's a good place with good people and they're talking about good things. And he enjoyed that. To that extent, we understand Peter's request and we sympathise with it. But, why does he ask for three tabernacles? Why not six, for example? Or better still, why not one? Why not one? The tabernacle that Peter knew best is the tabernacle we know best. It's the most famous tent that there's ever been in the world. It's the tabernacle in the wilderness, which had a special guest, and that was God himself, who who was pleased to tabernacle amongst men. It's a wonderful thing, the thought of God tabernacling amongst men. Uh, John tells us in his Gospel that when Christ came into the world, that was God also tabernacling amongst men in the body. Um, When the Holy Spirit comes into the heart, he's tabernacling with you too. Uh, But there was a special sense here in the Old Testament where he tabernacled with his church. There was a special tent built on special specifications and everything in connection with that tent reflected the person and work of Jesus Christ because that preeminently is where God tabernacles with men. He will always tabernacle with men in the person of Jesus Christ. So this tent in the Old Testament was reflective of the glory of Christ Jesus. But right at the heart of the tabernacle was the Shekinah cloud, from the Hebrew word Shekan, which means to dwell. God dwelt in this uh, cubic structure that was the Holy of Holies, ten by ten, a place of perfection and of holiness. There doth beauty shine. That's the tabernacle that Peter knew best. And the person who mattered in that tabernacle was God. You approached him through the altars, via the showbread, in the light of the lampstand. You approached God and had fellowship with God. Now, if Peter really appreciates the dignity and the glory of the man in the middle, he would simply say, let's make a tabernacle here. Let Moses be there. Let Elijah be there. And let us be there. And let us learn of thee, the one who is meek and lowly in heart. But of course, that's not what he asks for. He asks for a tabernacle for the three. Now, I suppose, again, we want to give him as much rope as we can. I suppose there's a sense in which he knows them to be so honourable. And they are. He knows that they are now heavenly beings. They are glorified and they are perfect in their holiness. And there's, I suppose, a sense in which he wants to give them a distinct dwelling. Ah, but is that not to place them on too much of a level with the Saviour? They're all there in glory, but are they the same? Are they like a trinity, equal in power and glory? Absolutely they are not. The glory in which Moses and Elijah appear are just a reflection of the glory of the man in the middle. And that is why the Father makes them recede from you and leaves none save Jesus only. There is still too much in Peter there of looking to people, making a lot of people, and just making people too much like Christ. Now I mentioned that last night and 
I'm only going to mention it again today, but it's actually worth mentioning again. There is a tendency in the human heart to make too much of man, whether that's man on earth or man in heaven. Man is man. Men and women are men and women. That's all they are. And we've got to watch putting human writings on the level of the Bible. We've got to watch putting human people on the level of Christ himself. So often in the church, especially in that day of spiritual declension, people become followers of people. They follow the example of people, whether it's good or bad. And they read any books that appears in a Christian bookshop, if it has the stamp of a Christian publisher on it. Let's be more discerning than that. Let's be like the Bereans who took everything they heard back to the Word of God. Even when Paul preached, they took what Paul preached back to the Word of God. Let's be like that. And the relationship between you and your Bible is the most important relationship you can form in this world. It's through that Word that you encounter the Word of God Himself. A prayerful, disciplined, spiritual, humble reading of the Bible is the best thing you can do for your spiritual life. And if something or someone has come in between you and the Word of God, written as well as incarnate, put that right. Hear Him and let Him guide you to heaven on the straight and narrow path that is the path that He has ordained. So that really is the tabernacle that He should have asked for, not three. Of course, uh, there was a minister who once said that he, I think it was Macaulay, used to be in back, that Peter didn't ask a, a, for a tabernacle for himself because he just wanted to be in and out of the other tabernacles, which is, of course, true. But the three are not the same. And the Father emphasizes that uh, no one can take the place of Christ's glory. That, that's the glory. The, the glory that shone there is the glory that now shines in heaven. It, the, the Lamb is the light thereof. And if you were to think of all the saints in glory, uh, even today as we speak, they're surrounded in light. And because of that light, wherever they are or what they're doing, or whatever they're speaking of, they are conscious that it's in that purest light of thine that they clearly see light. That all their thought and all their discussion and all their meditation, reflection and gratitude is surrounded with the light that emanates from the throne at which the Lamb himself is at the heart of. It's a wonderful thing, but Peter doesn't seem to fully realise that. So he's wanting to stay where he can, and sadly he's not doing justice to the unique glory of the Saviour. Hear him. No, only time would tell what Peter, James, and John would do with what they saw and heard on the mountain top. But I'm sure they understood it better and um, that they appreciated it more afterwards. I think that's true of a lot of what Christ did and said. I don't think they valued it really in the way in which they should at the time. In kindness, the Holy Spirit takes it back to them and they're enabled to enjoy it afterwards. I mean, you often read in the Bible that uh, they didn't understand something. For example, when Christ said, um, 
destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again and so on. Now statements like that are confessedly obscure anyway. But there were other things that Christ said which were a lot more plain. But they were forgetting them. Or sometimes just not listening very well. But in tenderness the Lord said that when the Comforter comes, he will bring to your remembrance the words that I have spoken. And how he did so. How he did so. And we are thankful too that even if we miss things because of dullness of hearing, there are strange ways in which the Lord comes back later and blesses us with these things. Now, these things are more common than we realize. Let me give you an example. Uh, one of the, the great miracles, in fact the only miracle that's recorded in the four Gospels, is the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. Now, every miracle by definition is wonderful. Every miracle is a wonder. Um, but to see that miracle when the Lord simply broke five loaves and two fish and as he broke they simply multiplied and grew. I remember hearing once that they, that they grew in the disciples' uh, hands or what the, but they grew in the Lord's hands. He's the one who multiplied and kept making something. But they observed this remarkable phenomenon of five loaves and two fish feeding 5,000 men which didn't we're told in the Bible include the women and the children so who knows there might have been 10,000 that were fed that day but 5,000 men who were to partake of the Passover they took and they saw these the, the apostles saw the miracles now there's an amazing thing recorded about that uh, that miracle and I don't know if you've noticed this before but we're told that later that night, later that night, um, when Christ came to the disciples in a storm, that was a marvelous thing in itself. He he walked on the water and called himself the I Am, and they received him into the boat. We're told that they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure. Because they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. Now, I, remember, I still remember the first time I noticed that. I'm just like yourself. You read the Bible and sometimes things just don't spring out at you. Other times they spring out at you. They had not understood about the loaves and the fish because their heart was hard. Now, it was hard while the miracle was taking place. And in the afternoon afterwards, it was still hard. And therefore, they didn't understand. They didn't understand the wonderful truth that Christ was teaching about himself when he multiplied the bread and the fish. Himself as the bread of life. They didn't understand because their hearts were hard. Now, it takes me back in a way to where we were on Thursday night. We, we're often prone to misunderstand their spiritual condition from time to time. I'm sure you've discovered that your own condition can sometimes vary uh, from month to month. Maybe it can vary from hour to hour. It can certainly vary from month to month. 
It doesn't take long sometimes for a person of strength to become a person of weakness. Uh, it usually takes a bit longer for a person of weakness to become a person of strength. It's always easier to slip back than it is to move forward. But these fluctuations can occur, and they clearly occurred in the disciples' life. Hard in the presence of a miracle. Imagine that. Hard in the presence of a miracle, and not able to understand its significance, because their heart was hardened. Who would have thought that Peter, James, and John could see all this, but not understand it? Well, they didn't, really, at the time. But is that any different from ourselves? I'm sure you can look back at times in your own life, people that you knew, oh, how you wish you could meet them again, how you wish uh, you had better valued the conversation that you had with them, the counsel that they gave, the guidance, the places that you visited, how you wish you could visit them again, how attentive you would be this time to what these people had to say, how you would listen, how you would value it. I wonder sometimes if Peter had that in mind. You know that, that passage that we read in um, in Second Peter, he, he spoke about the importance of listening. He says, um, I'm rem- I, he says, you know the things that I'm writing to you. That's what he said. I'm, I'm telling you to add to your faith and to make your calling and election sure. And I know, he says, that I'm not writing anything new to you. But he says, as long as I'm in this temporary tent here, he says, I'm going to stir you up by reminding you of these things, because shortly I'll have to put off this tent, as our Lord showed me. Christ, of course, showed Peter exactly how he would die, and Peter knows that that is is coming near. And he says, I want you to remember these things after I die, because when I told you, he says, about the power of Christ and about his coming, I wasn't following any cunningly devised fable, but what the Old Testament had made plain. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I saw who this man really was, a man who appeared to others like a wonder worker, yes, but still basically a man, a prophet. No, he says, I saw his majesty, because God the Father gave him honour and glory. And I heard the voice that his father spoke when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the Bible therefore confirmed. We have the prophetic word made more sure or confirmed. And you would now, he says, do well to take heed to it as a light, the Bible as a light that shines to you in a dark place. Give heed to it. These words struck me too. You would do well to give heed to it as a light in a dark place. Peter, when that light shone in the dark place that night, did you give heed to it? No, he would say, I did not. I didn't really know what I had when I had it. I, I, I did value it in one way. I wanted the experience to stay. I wanted to prolong it. But oh, in a way, I wish I could go back. Praise the Lord, I don't need to because it's not far away. It's not far away when I'll see him face to face and I'll see that glory even better than I saw it that night. But in another respect, how I wish I could go back and see it again and listen in the way that I didn't listen the first time I heard it. We miss a lot. And why do we miss a lot? Because we're asleep. 
Nothing can take away from the fact that what dominates this whole situation is the fact that the disciples fell asleep before the transfiguration took place and they woke up too late. They woke up too late. They saw Moses and Elijah and they heard a snippet of what was said but all too soon they were fading out of view. In other words, they missed a blessing. They missed a blessing. That, that inability to really understand and appreciate actually takes me to something else. I know this is going forward to the descent from the mountain, and I, I don't want to descend from this mountain really until the Sabbath evening and Monday night, God willing. But on the descent, it's worth noticing what they speak about. There's only one thing recorded that they speak about. I don't think there was much said coming down from the mountain anyway. But if you were going to ask the Lord something about what had just happened, what, what would you have asked? Now, we're, we're all wise after the event, of course, but what would we have asked? So much to ask. So much to ask about the glory that they saw. Uh, so much to ask about the conversation that they heard. Uh, a decease, a, a departure, an exodus that was going to be accomplished in Jerusalem. Tell us more about that. The question that they asked was, why does the Bible say that Elijah must come first? Now, that's an interesting question. And I can't say it's an irrelevant question. But I can say that it's not the question that really matters. It's one of these interesting questions that's not really the point. You know, uh, I had an example of this once, well, more than once myself. Perhaps every minister of the gospel has it from time to time. It's a case of um, telling people or showing people something and you realise afterwards that it hasn't worked. That the message has not got through. Let's say, for example, that you're preaching a message on forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness. And let's say you're taking from the parable that the Lord tells about the unmerciful servant, uh, the one who begs his own master to forgive him a tiny little sum of money, and then he goes out, sorry, sorry, uh, he asks his own master to forgive him an immense sum of money, which is actually, in today's currency, millions of pounds. And then once he actually gets forgiveness for that, he goes to a subordinate servant of his own and he extorts by force just a tiny sum of money. He demands it. And he demands punishment when that's not, when that's not given up. And that's because of Peter again saying, how often do we have to forgive each other? Seven times? Peter thought that was heroic proportions to actually, on seven occasions, forgive someone for a wrong they had done to you. Christ says, not seven, he says, but 70 times seven. That doesn't mean on the 491st time that you're free to judge a person. No, 70 times seven is seven times ten times seven. You've got your perfect and complete numbers again. In other words, just go on. Complete and full forgiveness, even as the Lord has shown complete and full forgiveness to yourself. Now, supposing you were hearing that in a good spirit, 
Supposing you were in the spirit when that was being preached to you in the house of God, how fool you would be of a sense of the Lord's marvellous forgiveness for yourself. And once you are full of that, I mean really full of that, then to forgive a brother or sister becomes not much at all. Now, suppose you stand at the church door and someone comes to you and says, do you think Peter is the rock on which the church was built? How would you feel about that? You would say, well, that's an interesting question. It's not completely irrelevant because it involves Peter. But what on earth does it have to do with what the Lord has just told you and what you've just heard? Is it not a sign that it's all just washed over and all that comes back is just an interesting speculation that you may have yourself? It's not what God said to you today. It's not what God said to you just now. And if I or you are constantly coming out of the house of God and we've got nothing but the the same old things and we haven't heard what the Lord took before you today, then we're not listening. We're no different from the person coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and saying, why does the Bible say that Elijah has to come first? There's something more glorious than that on the mountain. And if you are in the right place, there will always be something more glorious for yourself in the house of God. I'm not giving preachers a blank check here. I'm not saying that every time you leave empty, it's your fault. Very often, if you leave empty, it is the preacher's fault. But I would also say in the main that when your own heart is right, you will have something for your own soul. And very often, when we leave where God has been and where God has spoken, and we have nothing but what we had in the past, it's because we were not listening and we were not attentive. It wasn't what God was saying to them today. And all that is because pride had closed their ears and they missed a blessing. Now, um, some people say you can't miss a blessing. What's for you won't go by you. Well, I know that in the higher sense, what's for you won't go by you. I'm well aware of that. That doesn't change the fact that if you're not in the right place, you miss what God has for you. In, in some ways, I suppose I can close with this, one of the best evidences of that is just in, in, in the psalm that we rang, uh, read and sang a minute ago. Just listen to what God says again. And it's God who says it. It's, it's not actually a preacher or a prophet or anybody else, but God is the direct speaker in the psalm. I'll fill your mouth, open it, but my people would not be attentive. So I gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. And they wandered in vain in counsels of their own. Is that a better thing than having listened to God in the first place? Definitely not. Because God says, Oh, that my people had me heard, and that Israel had chosen my ways, and I would have filled them with honey from the rock, and I would have fed them with the finest of wheat. Don't let anyone say that you can't miss a blessing. You absolutely can. And in coming to the Lord's table tomorrow, it's my, it's my part 
to seek the Lord to grant me a portion for you and for myself too. But it's your part to ask the Lord for a portion for yourself. And we pray that coming to a mount, we would see and understand what the Lord has for us. Now with that, we leave the disciples. Um, for now anyway. Uh, come back to them maybe on Monday evening. But it's time to focus on the Lord because the transfiguration was not just for the disciples. In fact, in the highest and best sense, it was for the Lord himself. It is the Father giving something special to Christ before his last journey to Jerusalem. Let us pray. O Lord, O God, when you have the finest of the wheat to give and the sweetest honey from the rock, how foolish we would be to close our mouth, to have no anticipation and no expectation. And so we pray as we uh, seek to gather around the table that you have furnished. We pray not to eat and drink as those who don't appreciate the wine or the bread, but to eat and drink as those who see the body of the Lord broken and his blood shed. So that when we leave the Mount of Ordinance, we have something to say of how the Lord met with us. O oh Lord, may we stop putting things by ourselves and enjoy the good things we have while we have them in this life. We bless you nonetheless that in your own wonderful way you are able to restore the years that the locust eats and to bring us back to places and to enjoy them again. Even Moses, having been one and a half thousand years in glory, was given to stand on the mountain, on which he could not stand because of his own anger and his own disobedience. Who would have thought after so long a time that a missed blessing would be a fulfilled and realized one? How good and gracious is our God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Our last uh, singing is in Psalm 27 and at verse 4. Psalm 27 at verse 4. One thing I of the Lord desired and will seek to obtain, that all days of my life I may within God's house remain. And that's not because of the glory of his people primarily, but because of this beauty, that I, the beauty of the Lord, behold me and admire, and that I in his holy place, that's the tabernacle we want, may reverently inquire. For he in his pavilion, that's another name really for a tent, a tabernacle, shall me hide in evil days, in the secret of his tent, me hide, and on a rock, me raise, and 
May his house be a tabernacle for us on the Lord's day. Let's stand to sing these three stanzas. Thank you. 